Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset's Friday News Roundup. Illinois now has almost 26,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and more than 1,000 deaths. Governor J.B. Pritzker says because the White House has not taken the lead, Illinois is joining six other neighboring states in a coordinated effort. Little Village residents are now suing after a smokestack demolition sent a cloud of dust into the air. New COVID-19 data from the city of Chicago showing a bend towards the beginning of the end. I am happy to announce that Chicago is beginning to flatten the curve on COVID-19 cases. Here to break down those stories and more, Better Government Association President David Greising. Hi, David. Hello, Jen. And our next guest, who has a new title, WTTW politics reporter Heather Sharon. Hey, Heather, congrats on the new job. Thanks, Jen. So let's start with the response to COVID-19 in our region. Heather, what are the latest numbers in Illinois? Well, yesterday was the most deadly day in Illinois with 125 people dying from the virus, which uh, is tough news because we have begun to see somewhat of a decrease in new cases. But it's clear that Illinois is far from the end or out of the woods. And Heather, where are we on testing and supplies right now in the state? Well, Governor Prisker announced yesterday that everybody who wants a test for coronavirus will now be able to get one. And this is with a combination of state-run facilities and private labs that have really been focused on ramping up the testing. However, testing has ranged between about 4,000 tests per day and about 6,000 tests per day. Now, several weeks ago, Governor Pritzker said that to really figure out where the virus is spreading and how fast it's spreading, Illinois needs to be testing about 10,000 people a day. So we're still far from that benchmark, which is part of the crucial data set that officials are going to be looking at before they decide whether to extend or even to lift the stay-at-home order. Well, Illinois has spent more than $174 million on purchases related to COVID-19. That includes ventilators, masks, hand sanitizer. David, how is this crisis impacting the state's finances, especially considering the fact that that two-year budget standoff is not that far behind us? It's not that far behind us, and the residual effect of that is more than $7 billion still in unpaid bills. Uh, Susanna Mendoza the controller is prioritizing payments to that are COVID-related, so the businesses that are supplying the health infrastructure are paid by the state. But Governor Pritzker had a press conference earlier this week where he talked about just the huge impact that um, we're facing, uh, a $2.7 billion shortfall for the current fiscal year that ends June 30th. We're looking at a $4.6 billion shortfall, he said, uh, for the next fiscal year that starts July 1st. And on top of that, the state's going to have to do some additional borrowing just to pay its bills. And so the total deficit that he's looking at for uh, next fiscal year is $6.2 billion. Well, here's a bit of what Governor Pritzker had to say about that budget shortfall. You don't have to be an epidemiologist to see that the virus is going to hit our budget hard. A reality that is being visited upon every state in the United States. The bottom line is this. Budget experts estimate that Illinois will have a $2.7 billion shortfall of revenues for this fiscal year and a $4.6 billion shortfall for next 
fiscal year. Heather, we don't know when we'll be on the other side of this pandemic, so the state will continue to spend on necessary supplies. But how are they planning to address these enormous shortfalls? Well, the short answer is is that we don't really know. The General Assembly hasn't met since the pandemic began, and it would be really up to them to sort of make these huge changes in terms of how the state's money is spent. However, Governor Pritzker has proposed using sort of a combination of borrowing and tapping, which would tap the state's emergency line of credit to sort of deal with the immediate need for cash. And then we'll unveil a revised budget proposal sometime, I would imagine, in the next month, because we're facing a statutory deadline of May 31st for the General Assembly to adopt a budget, which is really sort of, you know, shocking to think that if under normal circumstances, budget sort of back and forth and, you know, sort of fighting would be in full swing in Springfield right now. But that's all on hold and muted because nobody really knows sort of what the scope of the problem is and sort of what cuts are even possible because uh, I think there's a fear, especially among Democrats that I've spoken to, that if the state were to contract spending significantly, that that would serve to worsen the economic crisis that we're all facing. So I think that there's going to be a real attempt to some to find some sort of middle ground there. But it's important to remember that unlike the federal government, the state government can't just start printing money to help people. Uh, they are required to pass a balanced budget. Although, as you and Dave mentioned, uh, in Illinois, that is perhaps um, more of an aspirational goal, or at least it has been in years past. Well, David, talk a little bit more about some of the tough decisions lawmakers are, are likely to make in the future and how that might impact Illinois residents when we talk about the possibility of cutting social programs. But we also know that hundreds of thousands of Illinoisans are currently out of work. Well, yes, we're seeing record levels of unemployment. Unemployment levels are at five times what they were during the so-called Great Recession that we saw between 2008 and 2010. That was the worst economic condition that any of us had ever seen in our lifetime. And so now we're at something five times that amount. Illinois has very little room to play with in its budget. It's got essentially no rainy day fund. There is money coming in from the federal government, both to individuals um, through the CARE Act and then to the state to reimburse the state for some of the direct costs associated with fighting COVID. But that's only going to reimburse for expenses. So these other budgetary problems that we're talking about will still exist despite the federal money that will come in to help pay the bills related to COVID. Well, some conservative lawmakers are are calling on the governor to drop his graduated income tax proposal because of COVID-19. But Pritzker says we need it now more than ever. David, break that down for us. Well, uh, there's a big fight over the progressive tax. And Governor Pritzker has said that if the progressive tax doesn't pass, that the deficit will be even larger next year. $7.4 billion is the number that he threw out there. And you're right, conservatives are saying this is no time to raise taxes. There goes the fact that his tax really only raises taxes on the top 3%. And, in fact, people at the lower levels, at the very lower levels, actually see less of a tax burden. Uh, But this is going to be a political football, and it's something on which we as individuals have a say. This is not something in the legislature anymore. It's going to be on the fall ballot, on the November ballot, and the question of restructuring our tax system 
is going to be very much alive. You're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on Reset. When we break down the biggest local and state news of the week, our panel today includes Heather Sharon of WTTW and David Greising of the Better Government Association. Some other stories we're watching today, the Chicago Transit Authority is reporting a third employee death linked to COVID-19. Media reports say the employee was a bus mechanic who had been with the CTA for 20 years. On Tuesday, the CTA announced the bus driver died after contracting COVID-19. And the first batch of the newly manufactured General Motors ventilators are being distributed to Chicago hospitals today. The Chicago Tribune reports several dozen ventilators will be delivered by the weekend. Uh, Illinois is coordinating with six other Midwestern states to reopen the regional economy once the threat of COVID-19 is passed. And here's a clip of Governor J.B. Pritzker explaining their approach. We are committing, all of us, to work in close coordination as a region to most effectively reopen our economy with a fact-based, data-driven approach. Heather, what can you tell us about this effort? Well, what's interesting is that it is really a response to the continuing frustration Governor Pritzker and other state leaders have had to the federal government's response. And it's clear now, um, especially after President Trump's press conference on Thursday, that the federal government does not have the authority to sort of reopen the economy all at once and instead laid out sort of a three-pronged plan to restart everything. And this agreement will make sure that Illinois, along with the five other states, sort of move in concert so you don't have a situation where one state is reopening everything and then the other state is reopening nothing. And it's supposed to prevent, I think, um, an, an, a second wave of coronavirus, which could certainly happen if one state is acting uh, in a way that's opposed to the other state. The other issue is, though, that it does not include Iowa and Missouri. And of course, those two states share borders with Illinois. Both of those states are led by Republicans who have been reluctant to impose stay-at-home orders, um, perhaps for fear of angering President Donald Trump. So it's somewhat of a coordinated regional approach, but there are big holes, especially considering that there is a major hotspot in East St. Louis, which is, of course, right across the Mississippi from um, Illinois. Now, the states that are involved in this coalition um, are Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Indiana, and Kentucky. David, has there been anything like this before? Any model that they can sort of borrow from to, to try to figure out how this should work? Well, there are some models out there. For example, there's an alliance of states that border the Great Lakes, and so those states have a, a practice of working together on issues. Many of those same states have is working together on issues as related to the Great Lakes, which are a shared resource. There are also forming uh, another coalition of states in New England and on the West Coast as well. Um, it is going to be interesting. I think what Heather pointed out is very interesting and important because Missouri, for example, there are all kinds of people who commute back and forth across the Mississippi River. And so if Missouri opens up on May 3rd, as they say they plan to, that could just really undermine this whole statewide effort. And it also is interesting for us to pay close attention to Indiana, uh, where Governor Eric Holcomb, who's the only Republican in this six-state Midwestern coalition, uh, he also plans to reopen Indiana in early May. And so people who come from, say, Gary or East Chicago into into Chicago could undermine this effort to band together and fight the virus. 
Well, on Thursday, Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers extended that state's stay-at-home order through May 26. Heather, are we getting any sense of what Governor Pritzker is planning for Illinois? Well, we expect Governor Pritzker either today or tomorrow to announce that Illinois schools will be closed for the remainder of the academic year. That shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody, but I think it is a gut punch to people who were still hoping that the um, academic year was salvageable. I don't believe that it is. I think it would be very surprising for Governor Pritzker to lift the stay-at-home order on May 1st when it is ex- after it is expected to expire on April 30th. However, we may see um, a change to that stay-at-home order where some things open or that there are some practices that are released. But as we just talked about, yesterday was the most deadly day for Illinois in this virus. And while there is certainly, uh, we're seeing light up ahead, uh, we are no way through the perhaps the worst of this. So I think that's why you're going to see Governor Pritzker announce that the schools will remain closed. Um, And I think that we can look at what happened in China to get a timeline of sort of what we're looking at here in Wuhan, where the virus originated things were shut down for approximately 72 days. So we're about 30 days into the stay-at-home order. And I think that's how we have to calibrate our expectations um, for when we will be through this. And I misspoke. I want to make a correction there. It's Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers. You know, Dave, that that brings up the question about Illinois as a state as a whole, because we have concentrations of COVID-19 in certain parts of the state, but downstate they're seeing less than what we're seeing in Cook County. What does that mean for for downstate Illinois? Well, it it risks putting people in a false sense of security because while the number of cases in the lower downstate are are lower, their vulnerability, if there is an outbreak, is far greater. And if you do have a cluster that starts to develop, the, the regional hospitals, et cetera, are really just not equipped to deal with an influx of uh, COVID-19 patients. And so um, just like with so much, that I think one of the biggest concerns that Governor Pritzker and Mayor Lightfoot have talked about is people being lured into a false sense of security. And I would say that even though those numbers are low in the, in the rural areas of the state, uh, as Heather pointed out, there's a big cluster in East St. Louis that could easily spread into the surrounding rural areas, and those areas are very vulnerable. Well, switching to some city news on Wednesday, Mayor Lori Lightfoot released new data showing that social distancing measures are working in Chicago. Let's take a listen. I am happy to announce that Chicago is beginning to flatten the curve on COVID-19 cases. Despite our recent gains, I want all Chicago to hear me loud and clear. We still have a long way to go. David, unpack that for us. First of all, I think Mayor Lightfoot is probably very well aware of what is happening state where a few days ago Governor Pritzker seemed to believe that we were finding the curve and then we had two days that set new records. Um, and, and so we have to be very careful about being optimistic, as Mayor Lightfoot sounded in that clip. Um, if we do get to the point of kind of easing, these are the things that they're going to look at, um, a, a sustained control of new infections, enhanced testing capacity, which we're seeing start to develop, a healthcare system that could handle a resurgence which we're seeing with the new capacity that's being installed in McCormick Place and such. And we're also seeing larger-than-expected capacity at existing hospitals because the caseload has not been as large as expected and the curve has been flattened some, somewhat. They're also looking for uh, parameters of social distancing once, once we do go back to work and we can do these things. 
So before we start looking ahead to these days where we kind of go back to what people knew as normal back 30 days ago, those are the things that, uh, that Mayor Lightfoot and Governor Christopher will be looking for. Well, Heather, Mayor Lightfoot and Alderman are attempting to continue with business for City Council. They heard their, held their first City Council meeting over Zoom this week. How did it go? It went okay. There was no grand catastrophe. There was a couple of hiccups. For example, when the alderman attempted to take a procedural vote where everybody was supposed to vote no, everybody voted yes because they had misunderstood what was happening. And then Mayor Lightfoot had to say, no, 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 no let's let's try that again. So some minor hiccups, but the members, m- members of the public were able to sign up and then call in and have their say. A far bigger test will happen on Monday when the city's public safety committee will meet virtually to consider the appointment of uh, acting superintendent David Brown, who's coming from Chicago, from Dallas, and they are expected to uh, endorse his selection by Mayor Lightfoot and forward that to the full city council, which is expected to meet on Wednesday. And that's when they're supposed to conduct a full meeting. And these council meetings, if you follow me on Twitter, you know that they can last for hours and hours. So we'll have to see how that all works um, in a virtual way. But they have laid the groundwork, they've approved the rules, and now we'll see if they can actually get the business of the city done. Well, as you said there, Heather, David Brown has officially taken over as the city's acting police superintendent. Wednesday marked Charlie Beck's last day on the job. Let's take a quick listen. I came to Chicago without knowing virtually anybody that was uh, in the Chicago Police Department. I leave feeling very much connected to them and very much as part of the CPD family. I wouldn't have come if it wasn't for Mary Lori Lightfoot. I couldn't be prouder to leave CPD in such good hands. David, talk about some of the immediate challenges David Brown will face as acting superintendent. Well, Charlie Beck got a lot of work done for David Brown coming in. He reorganized the police department in a lot of ways, uh, establishing a new Office of Constitutional Policing and a new Audit Division and restructuring command. He put 30 new command officers in place just a few weeks ago. But uh, David Brown will still face significant challenges. First of all, figuring out how to police safely in a COVID-19 environment is going to be the first thing on his plate. Uh, We're starting to see members of the police force struck by COVID-19, and that's going to be an ongoing problem. And then, of course, implementation of the consent decree that arose out of the Laquan McDonald's case and other road policing tactics. David Brown has dealt with uh, issues uh, related to racial bias and other problems that are to be addressed in this consent decree. He went with a community policing approach and a de-escalation approach, both of which were pretty successful, and he's going to have to implement that remotely now get a police force and prepare this police force for the summer, which is when people may be getting back to the streets, and it's always when violence on the streets of Chicago uh, tends to go go up. Well, Charlie Beck was tapped by the mayor to replace former Superintendent Eddie Johnson, who was fired six months ago, but we still don't know exactly what happened. Heather, quickly, what's the latest on that? Well, the Inspector General, Joseph Ferguson, has been investigating this incident since then, and we know that he presented Mayor Lightfoot with information that prompted her to say that Eddie Johnson had lied to her, and she terminated him immediately, paving the way for Charlie back to take over in December. 
that's basically all we know. And the mayor has said she will release in some form his findings and report. So we are just waiting to see this week. The mayor signaled she is also frustrated with the wait uh, and she called on Ferguson uh, to get it done. You're listening to the Friday News Roundup here on Reset. Our panel today includes Heather Sharon of WTTW and David Greising of the Better Government Association. Coming up in five minutes, Orthodox Easter is this Sunday. We'll speak with religious leader Metropolitan Nathaniel of Chicago to hear about the Lenten season's significance during the novel coronavirus pandemic. Stay with us for that. I want to turn now to a story that happened over the weekend, demolition at the Crawford Coal Plant in the city's Little Village neighborhood. Residents are now suing developers. Heather, what happened? The Crawford Power Plant is set to become an, a distribution facility for e-commerce, and the company is basically tearing down the old red brick structure to build a new one. And in part of that, they had to knock down a smokestack. And they did that and sent just a horrible cloud of dust throughout Little Village and the and the surrounding area. And the mayor has said she's furious that the company had promised the dust wouldn't leave the site. And there are all sorts of lawsuits and investigations flying to figure out what actually happened and who should be held responsible. And David, you recently wrote an op-ed in the Tribune calling for more transparency. Tell us about that. Well, this happens in the context of Mayor Lightfoot and other mayors around the state saying that they shouldn't have to respond to public records requests during the COVID-19 crisis. And what I, I use this incident to point out that, yes, COVID-19 is out there, but there are other things that happen in government and, and in public affairs that we still need answers, and we need answers about what happened here. There are all kinds of conflicting versions of how this happened, what the developer, Hilco, had promised to the city. For example, aldermanic privilege becomes an issue because uh, some of the aldermen are saying this never would have happened if they still had veto power over everything that happens in their wards. So there's all kinds of very important both legal and public policy questions here, and and, and the public needs to have immediate access to records that arose from this really despicable abuse of public trust and the, the physical danger that this company created by its botched falling of that huge smokestack. Well, we'll have to leave it there. That's it for the Friday News Roundup. Thanks to our panel today, Heather Sharon of WTTW and David Greising of the Better Government Association. Heather, David, thanks for speaking with us and have a good weekend. You too, Jen. Stay safe. And that's today's Reset. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. We bring you important and fascinating conversations each day to keep you informed and even entertained. I'm Jen White. Stay safe, have a good weekend, and let's talk again soon.